How many of you, like me, grew up uh, going to Sunday school and learning Bible stories? Many of you did. Most of you did. Well, hopefully we got most of it straight. Um, however, sometimes it's possible to hear things in whatever way we hear them, and sometimes the children get some of the facts confused, and I'm told the test was done at a church of seven-year-olds to test their Bible knowledge. And they came home with some, they came up with some interesting answers, and I want to read you some of the answers, and we're going to pray that we're not as confused as some of them. They thought that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. <laughs> they also thought that Moses died before he reached the land of Canada instead of Canaan. But on the way, he did stop and get the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho for all the older people. <laughs> These seven-year-olds also wrote that the greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. <laughs> Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> the people who followed the Lord were called the 12 decibels and their wives were called epistles. And finally, for Christmas time, when Jesus was born, three wise guys from the east side showed up and saw Jesus and his manager. I think that Sunday school program needs a little help. What do you think? We're going to look this morning at a famous Old Testament Bible story that you probably learned in Sunday school. I am confident that one of the most critical issues, if not the most critical issue, that every one of us face as Christians is this idea of obedience to Christ and choosing daily to live in the will of God. Some of us in this room are in the season of our lives where we are regu regularly asking, Lord, what is your will for my life? Others of us are in the process of running as far away from the will of God as we possibly can, and I'm not just talking about unbelievers. I refer to this obedience to Christ as a primary issue because I truly believe it's foundational to all of us in our Christian walk. There's never a day in your Christian life from the moment of your salvation to the moment when God calls you home that you will not be grappling with living in obedience to Christ. You never graduate from it. You never get so mature as a believer that it is no longer critical for you. You can never afford to be casual about it, and you certainly cannot be flippant about it. And that which is true for me is also true for you, which is that this, there is this force that comes against and works against, wars against the will of God for our lives and the purpose of God in our lives, the plan of God for our lives, and that force is our own will, our own desires, and our flesh. We're going to look this morning in the Bible at a book that has everything to do with obedience to God and living in the will of God. It's a book that many people see as absolutely impossible, and therefore it's one of the most controversial books of the Bible. And I'm not talking about Genesis and the creation account, but rather I'm talking about the book of Jonah. And when you think about Jonah, every time you think about Jonah, you think about the whale. But here's what I want us to understand today. This book of Jonah is not a book about a big fish, but it's a book about a big God. Amen. 
There are a total of 48 verses in the whole of this book, spread out over four chapters. And what's funny is that the thing that this book is known to be about is the big fish, or the whale, and it's mentioned in only three of those 48 verses, while God, or the Lord, is mentioned in 38 of the 48 verses that are in these four chapters. Now, I know many people struggle with the book. I mean, really, how could it be true? It's got to be some sort of a myth or some sort of a a tale that was made up. Doesn't this book and and, and what it's proposing to say to us tend to erode the integrity and the authenticity of the Bible because it's absolutely so outrageous? I mean, really, someone being swallowed by a fish and yet living to tell the story? Come on. How can that possibly be true? Well, there's a reason why I don't struggle with this authenticity or why I don't have any difficulty believing that it's a possibility because I believe the words of the Lord Jesus and I believe he knows what he's talking about and I believe he doesn't lie. And so therefore, if Jesus in the New Testament speaks about this Old Testament story, then very simply, I have no difficulty believing it to be true. And I want to just remind you how Christ himself validated this Jonah story in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, where some of the Pharisees and teachers came to Jesus and they were demanding a miraculous sign. And Jesus simply responded by saying this in Matthew 12, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, Jesus is about to reference our four chapters of of the book of Jonah, which will be our primary text today. And I will remember, please remember, this is Christ himself speaking. In verse 40, he says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, how many of you are with me? If Jesus said that, it's true. No, you're not with me today. I said, if Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Not only does Christ validate the story and say that it's true, but he also used it to illustrate the most important event and the reason why he came to this planet, which is to die for our sins and to rise again. And he happens to use Jonah as his example. And so if Jesus said it, I believe it. How about you? All right. And yet I know, I'm not so naive, but to know that there are people on this planet who use that as one of the examples from Bible that they think discredits the Bible or or erodes its authenticity. There's a story of a sweet little old grandmother that was on a plane, and she just hated traveling by air. Her fear of traveling on a plane caused her to be sure that she kept her her Bible out and she would read words that gave her comfort while she was flying on the plane. She happened to be sitting next to an agnostic businessman reading his fortune magazine. The man looked over at the grandmother and, and he rather chuckled at her reading her Bible and after a while he had the boldness to say to her, See, you, don't, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? And the grandmother replied, well, of course I do. It's, it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. I believe every word of it. And the man said, well, that's nice. What about, um, what about the guy who was swallowed by a whale? You believe that? Oh, she said, you mean Jonah. Yes, I believe it because it's in the Bible. And he said, how do you suppose he survived all that time he spent in the belly of the whale? I mean, three days and three nights? Are you kidding me? 
And she said, well, sir, I, I can't really say that I know how that happened, but I, I know that when I get to heaven, I'll ask him, ask him. And the gentleman said, well, what if he isn't in heaven? She said, well, in that case, you ask him. An interesting witnessing technique. I don't know if it works every time. The command of the Lord to Jonah was this. You know it. Go to Nineveh. It was not just any city. And if you'll give me just a minute or two to lay this background, it's important for where we're going today for you to understand this. It was not just any city. It was the city. It would be considered today as present-day Iraq. This city was amazing in its construction, and it was, it was just as amazing in its sin. In fact, if you see the references in Scripture, usually there's two words that are used. It's called beautiful and faithless, which was a good description. It was gorgeous to behold. It was magnificent in so many ways, but also it was as ungodly and full of sin as it could possibly be. It was considered one of the great cities. In fact, every version of Scripture that I looked at, I looked at several at at this, it refers to it as the great city of Nineveh. The walls of the city were so wide that historians tell us three chariots could be driven over over those walls side by side. And the walls were not only wide, but they were 100 feet high. By any standard, it was an impressive city. But it was also known for its sin. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 1 of the book, you'll see, that, uh, you'll see that God says about Nineveh, I have seen how wicked its people are. The literal translation would indicate that its sin has come to the, the highest pitch or its sin has come to the highest possible degree. It was almost like an overflowing septic tank that is starting to spill over and God is saying, I have had enough and I have to address this. I don't know about you, but doesn't that cause you to wonder when he's going to say that about the United States of America? But God is saying he's going to deal with Nineveh. And he's saying, you, Jonah, are going to be my siren. You are the one I'm sending to deal with this, my prophet. You're the one I'm sending to deal with this. And to take it just a step further in our, in our understanding, one of the distinctives about Nineveh was, it, it was that it was also known for its cruelty, not just sin, but its, its cruelty. Essentially, God's, man, God's command of Jonah to go to Nineveh was like sending him to a band of convicted killers. In fact, Nahum speaks of Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3 when he says this. This gives us even better description. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses' hooves pound, and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and glittering spears as the charioteers charge past. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. All of this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, there it is again, Mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. Everyone knew it was beautiful, and everyone knew it was filled with sin and gruesome cruelty. And God finally said, that's enough. I've had enough. And God's plan for dealing with Nineveh was to send Jonah. But here was the problem, and you know it. When God was saying, go, Jonah was saying, No. 
And this is exactly why there are more chapters in the book of Jonah than there ought to be. Because if Jonah had said yes in chapter 1 and had walked in obedience, it would have been a pretty short book. But because Jonah is saying no, we have more chapters than we probably should have. Oh, but wait. Isn't that what happens to all of us when we walk in disobedience? Don't we get more chapters in life than we ought to have? And certainly more chapters that we wish were not there. You're quiet on me this morning. In the next few minutes, I'm going to take one point from each of the four chapters that are in this book. We're going to go through the entire book of Jonah. We have till 4 o'clock today. And so it's a total of 48 verses. No, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it quickly. We're going to go through the whole book. This may be one that you want to get a pencil and paper and write down these four, one point from four books, four, the four chapters. Chapter 1. Serving God is hard at times. How many would agree with that? Serving God is hard at times, but not serving Him is even harder. In the midst of dealing with the personal issues that Becky and I have faced with her mother this week, and by the way, we thank you for being patient with us and loving us and praying for us this week. In the midst of all of that, in all the trying circumstances we had, I took a little break to have lunch with a, a, a gentleman who has become and is becoming a friend of mine, and he was wanting to meet, and, and uh, Becky was ready for me to be gone for a few minutes, shall we say. And, uh, you know, when you've been exhausted and you have poured yourself out, how many know that sometimes you can even get a little snippy with each other? I know it doesn't happen at your house. It happens at our house occasionally. And she just politely said, uh, don't you need to go to the church for something? And, um, or, and she didn't say it this way, but it kind of what I heard was, don't you need to go anywhere for just a few minutes? So uh, she said she didn't mean that. She was doing that for my sake. But I did take a break and had lunch with a gentleman. And he's facing some devastating personal issues. And he made a comment to me, which was basically this idea. He said, you know, Dan, my situation, after he'd given me some of the details, it's almost complicated by being a Christian. And I looked at him. He says, I, that may be hard to understand. He said, you know, if I weren't following Christ, I could just react any way that I wanted to. I could say what I wanted to say. And boy, I have plenty, I'd like to say. I could do what my flesh wanted to do. I could do whatever seemed to appease me for the moment and make me feel better about this situation. And do I wish I could do that? At times the answer is yes. He said, my devotion and my consecration to Christ restrains me. And I respected him for saying that. Church, without a doubt, there are difficult moments to being a Christian. And anyone who ever tries to tell you different is lying to you. But to not serve God, the Bible says that the way of the backslider is really difficult. 
And here you have in this book of Jonah, you have 75% of this book devoted not to the greatest revival that we see takes place, where we see the entire city of Nineveh get saved at the end of, and they repent at the end of chapter 3. This book is not dedicated to the revival of one of the most cruel cities on the planet, as amazing as that revival is and, and the repentance is. 75% of the book is devoted to God trying to get a Christian to do the right thing. God's problem was not the heathen. God's problem was his own prophet. God's problem was not wicked Nineveh. God's problem was disobedient Jonah. And it's worth noting that in this book, everything obeys God except the prophet of God. The fish obeys God. There's even a, a, a worm in chapter 4 that obeys God when you read it. A plant obeys God, but Jonah would not obey God. And the repentance of Nineveh, all 120,000 of them living in spiritual darkness, was all dependent upon, can we get this one guy to do what he is supposed to do? But instead, when Jonah hears the call to go to Nineveh, the Bible says in verse 2, I'm now in the book of Jonah, Chapter 1, verse 2. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. To what? To get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa. For he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord. Stupid. By sailing to Tarshish. I don't think I said that out loud, did I? Hopefully I didn't. Serving God can be hard. But not serving the Lord can be much harder. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Isn't it interesting that when Jonah made the determination to not do the will of the Lord, he happened to find a ship going in the opposite direction. Isn't that interesting? Can we just say it plainly? Just because you find something doesn't mean God provided it. You can find a date, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's who God's provided for you. You can find a job, but that doesn't mean it's the job God provided for you. You can find anything you want if you look hard enough. And Jonah happens to find a ship going in the opposite direction. And he finds the thing that he believes is going to take him out of the will of God because the pressure of the will of God and his own desires, his own flesh, his own will, the pressure of that, he wanted out of it. Somehow believing that getting on that boat would relieve him from the pressure for his disobedience. Isn't it amazing, church, that you can be out of the will of God and it can even look like things are working together. 
Things are being put right in front of you. And you're thinking, well, if this ship happens to be going the wrong direction, then this must be the Lord not wanting to take me, not wanting me to go to the place that he told me to go. Surely that's what he means by providing this for me. There's a phrase that's become popular. I hear it more and more all the time. Christian circles, you've heard it. The phrase, hear me, in and of itself is not bad. I have heard it occasionally used in an appropriate way. But here's the deal. I hear so often people say, oh, we put our house up for sale. It's sold in three hours. And this sunny on the day we were putting our stuff in the moving van. Everything went wonderfully well. Everybody was happy. We stopped at McDonald's and got some ice cream on the way. It was everything just fell right in place. It was a God thing. The phrase in and of itself is not bad. My problem is this. Just because it's easy, church, or just because it's convenient is not an affirmation or a confirmation that it's God's will. You're not going to like this. I, I should have warned you before I got up here. You're not going to like it. Can I just tell you my testimony? I can't think of a time when the will of God was easy. I can't think of a time. And yet we in our Western society, our Western Christian society, have somehow decided that when it all falls right into place and everything just works out perfectly, that's when it's God's will. That's not the story of my life. And I know enough of you to know that's not the story of your life. We think that God's will means easy, and it doesn't. Typically, hear me, hear me, hear me. Typically, God's will requires of you sacrifice, effort, denying your flesh, and laying down your own will. That's typically what it requires. But when those things end up being the story, sacrifice and laying down your will, rarely do I hear anyone call that a God thing. I never hear anyone say, you know what? We put our house up for sale. It took months for it to sell. The moving van had all our stuff in it and had a wreck and flipped over and everything was destroyed. The kids got sick. They never say it was a God thing at that moment. But that doesn't mean it's not the will of God. Oh, Jesus, let me communicate this from the depths of my heart today. So we know from the story that the ship to Tarshish is not the one God wants him on. Because it's going in the opposite direction. Now, I think we should understand the math in this situation. To get from the port of Joppa to Tarshish is 2,500 miles. He was going as far away from the will of God as he possibly could. He didn't want to be anywhere near where God told him to be. 2,500 miles on a boat is a, at that time was about a four-month journey. 120 days to go from where you hear from God all the way to the place where you are not supposed to be. However, to get from the port of Joppa to Nineveh, where he was supposed to be, was only 500 miles. So if he goes 
all the way to full disobedience, he's not only 2,500 miles out of the way, he's now got to another 500 miles just to get to the will of God. Do you realize how much time you're wasting when you choose to disobey? How many of you wish you could buy back some years? Wish you could buy back some months or some decades or some nights of ridiculous wrong decisions and disobedience to God? Don't raise your hand. And if you would have obeyed the first time, you wouldn't have quite so many chapters in your book today. We don't know how far into this four-month journey that God hurls the big wind. But when God does that and the boat gets crazy, these sailors start throwing stuff off. What's interesting is that they have no idea that the reason the boat is in a storm is because they took on somebody that didn't belong in the boat. And when you take on somebody that doesn't belong on the boat, the storm you get may not be a Jesus storm, but it may be the storm they brought with them. Are you hearing me today? With whomever you are involved, you had better be careful before you put them on your boat because the boat that you were on that was going so smooth that you thought was so wonderful, you had better be careful because the love boat may become the Titanic. (laughs) Am I telling you the truth today? You ready for me to stop now? While it is wonderfully true that when God wants to bless somebody, he very often will put someone in your life. It is also true, dear one, that when the devil wants to mess up your life, he'll put people in your life as well. It can work either way, which is why we learn to pray. Didn't mean for that to rhyme, it just came out that way. It can work either way. That's why we become people of prayer. When you attach yourself to the wrong people, their issues become your issues. Their disobedience starts leaking into your lifestyle. And while you're, you're wondering why you're in the situation of this storm, your issue may be that instead of throwing off the cargo, you need to be throwing off somebody, not just the cargo. It's interesting that when Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. I've discovered, and you can look this up, Google it yourself, not now, later. I've discovered that there is one other piece of the vine that the branch doesn't, that uh, the, the vine and the branch that we don't ever talk about. It's called, and some of you may know this, the sucker shoot. A sucker shoot will attach itself to the vine right next to the branch. And the sucker shoot does exactly what the name says. It sucks the life from the vine so that the branch is not getting the nourishment from the vine. And so the sucker, excuse me, so the sucker shoot is taking the life of the vine and the branch is withering up and dying. But the sucker shoot, which doesn't belong there, is feeling just terrific because it's taking all the nourishment, taking what is intended for the vine, though it doesn't deserve it. So the vine dresser has to come in and not just trim the branches. He's got to lop off the sucker shoots and say, what you're doing is you're taking the life away from the branch, which is trying to draw life from the vine. And that's what happens when you have the wrong people in your life and the wrong people 
in the boat. They start sucking the energy, the life, the resources that you have, and you may have to lop it off and say, go find another ship because on this ship, we're going to serve the Lord. It's hard at times to be a Christian, but it's way harder not to be a Christian. So Jonah tells them to throw him off, and they do it. And here comes the big fish. By the way, the Bible never uses the word whale. Here comes the fish that starts to swim his way at the command of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that the fish swallows him whole, and he's in the belly of the big fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2. By the way, they all get quicker as we go along. Don't get nervous. Chapter 2. Disobedience cheapens your value. Disobedience cheapens your value. Jonah is now in the belly of the fish. But we've got to see something here. That's plain as day in the scripture. Just how rebellious this man is. The end of chapter 1 tells us that the fish swallows him. He's in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days and three nights. And then we go to verse 1 of chapter 2. Three days and three nights. Chapter 2 verse 1. Then... Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. You mean to tell me you're in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, and that's when you decide to start praying? How many of you, like me, would have started praying when you saw that fish swim in your direction? That's when I would have started praying for sure. Talk about depth of rebellion. He not only gets swallowed, he's in there for three days and nights before he even prays. Do you ever find it amazing to see how long it takes some people to come to their senses? I don't even, I don't even want to think about what's going on inside that whale for three days and three nights. Until the moment comes when he decides to pray. And there's something for us here in this. There's something interesting about his prayer. We're in chapter 2 of Jonah. And his prayer that he's finally praying is from verse 2 through verse 9. And what you have to wonder as you look at this and you understand the circumstance is, what does a man pray who has just caused havoc on a heathen ship? What does a man pray who's in the, the belly of a whale? What does a man pray when he's just said no to God? How, how, how do you... How do you get past that? What do you pray at that moment? Where do you find the words? Well, you know what he does? I want to show you. When he looks, when you look at from verse 2 to 9, what Jonah does is to take his prayer language from the book of Psalms. The Psalms are all over this prayer that he prays in Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. Verse 2, there are echoes of Psalm 18, Psalm 120, Psalm 86. Verse 3. Shades of Psalm 88 and Psalm 42. Verse 4 is Psalm 31. Verse 5, Jonah is praying Psalm 69. Verse 6, Psalm 30. Can I just say, church, when you don't know what to pray, the Bible can become your greatest prayer book? Let's understand the Bible can give you the words to pray even when you are in the worst possible place physically or spiritually that you can ever be. When you have messed up and blown it completely, the Bible still offers words of life that you can pray to an almighty God. 
The only thing he could cry out were these amazing psalms. But think about it. Not being in the will of God cheapens who you are. In chapter 1, he's treated like dangerous cargo and he's thrown overboard. Chapter 2, he's treated like indigestion and he's thrown up by the fish. And that's what happens to people who will willfully walk away from God. There is nothing worse, and you've seen it just like I have. There is nothing worse than to watch someone who has known Jesus as they try to go back into the world and act like the world. Nothing is worse than to watch somebody who has truly tasted of the presence of God and the peace of God and to watch them to go out into the night and return to the life that God has delivered them from. It cheapens the call of God on your life. And Jonah, instead of being a prophet, is now dangerous cargo. He is now indigestion. And that is not what God intended for him. God was trying to put a word in his mouth to bring deliverance and revival and repentance to the people of Nineveh. That's what he was trying to do. And when the chapters in our lives get elongated and we start becoming something God never intended us to be, can I just tell you, when you are walking in the will of God, that's when you look best. That's when you look best. When you try to return to a godless life and you're trying to go back to something that you no longer are because, dear one, as a believer in Jesus, you have been made a new creature in Christ. No longer for the world. You belong to him. Who would want to go back to the very thing Christ delivered you from? Why would you want to go back to something that you were not created for? When our children were small, we lived not very far from a pond where there were ducks swimming around. I, I think there were ducks, ducks and geese, something that swam around, okay? And we would go over there often. And when, they, when these ducks are in the water, you notice how smoothly they just step in and they glide across the water. So peaceful and so graceful. But have you ever seen when they get out of the water and they start walking, all of their gracefulness and everything just goes away? And you want to say, get back in the water. You look so much better in the water. You look better doing what God has designed you to do. And that's what happens to us when we find ourselves in the world. No, you don't look right in the world because you were designed for something better. Can you say amen to that this morning? Because where you shine, dear one, is when those hands that were created for worship are lifted up, blessing the name of the Lord. These hands weren't created for drugs. These hands weren't created for abuse of any kind. They were designed, they were created to worship the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These hands were created to clap. That's why this morning, in the middle of that song, they said clap. It's not just an exercise to get you to wake up. Great if that happens. But your design is it's clapping because the Bible says clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. That's what a believer does. It's what you were designed to do. And you look best when you're doing what God has designed you to do. My sweet mother-in-law is sick as she is, as close to the end of life as she is. It was yesterday. I stepped out of the room for just a moment. I walked back in. Becky and I had finished our time there. We were going to leave for a while. And I stepped back in and Becky had her hand on her mom and she was just praying for her. So I just quietly stepped up to the bed and Becky finished and her mother said, thank you in a very soft voice. Then she looked at me and she said, I want you to sing me a song. I thought, really? I said, you know, and I, here's the problem. I know tens of thousands of songs, but you asked me to sing one. I can't think of one. 
It's just the way it's wired. I'm sorry. She said, sing me a song. I said, okay, Jerry, what do you want me to sing? She sang, Blessed Assurance. So in that room, as best I could, I said, this is my story. This is my song. As soon as I, that's all I had to say. This is a woman who served God all of her life. And she just, the look on her face was so heavenward. And those little arms that can't even have the strength to lift at all. I said, praising my Savior. She did this as best she could. And I began to hear her speaking in a heavenly language at that moment. All the day long. And I thought, that's what we're designed for. She looked so beautiful to me laying in that bed. Because her hands were raised. And even in what are probably some of the final days of her life. She was still saying, but I was born to serve the Lord. I was made in his likeness, created in his image. I am born to serve the Lord. And she knew in that moment, I'm going to lift my hands. It may be the last ounce of strength that I have, but I'm going to lift my hands and bless the name of the Lord. And church, you ought to do the same today. These hands were not designed for that which the world wants them to do. These hands are designed to clap and to bless the name of the Lord Jesus. These legs that God gave you are not created to dance in some filthy club or to walk into some crack house. These legs were designed to worship God and to dance before Him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't cheapen what God has created you to be. Chapter 1 tells us it's hard at times to be a Christian, but it's much harder not to be. By the way, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, today is the day of salvation. You need to meet the Lord today. You'll be given an opportunity at the end of this service. Chapter 2, to walk in obedience means to cheapen all that God has done inside of you. Let's move on to chapter 3. Oh my goodness. The same command never went away. The original Mandate, the original assignment never changed. It was always waiting for Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. And here's what I love about this. Instead of God holding a grudge... Instead of God deciding to destroy the prophet for his disobedience, he essentially said to him, after all of that other stuff had happened, he essentially said to him, I'm just waiting for you. And the call goes out in this room today. Whatever your journey has been, wherever it has taken you, it doesn't matter how long it's been, how far you've gone, the depths to which you have gone. When you read the text, there's implication when it talks about them. He's out in, in, in the ocean, in, in, in the belly of the fish, that even the roots of the mountains, he was down at the roots of the mountains. How far could that be? It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter the depths to which you've gone. It doesn't matter how long it is. We serve the God of a second chance who is calling out to you, saying, I'm just waiting for you. Hallelujah. Blessed be the Lord. He's the God of a second chance and a third chance and, thank God, a 500th chance. How many are thankful for that today? And he is also the God that does not change. 
Look at what he says now again in chapter 3. He says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Deliver the message I have given you. God says the command did not change. It's just taken longer because of all of these extra chapters that you're writing. I'm waiting for you. Waiting for you to come back because here's what I need you to do. Do you realize, church, it took God longer to prepare his servant to preach than it did for all of Nineveh to repent? Do you know that Nineveh repented in one day? All 120,000 of them, the Bible says. And the command that Jonah got in chapter 1 is still the same command that you see in chapter 3 after we've been through all the other stuff. Now, we cannot substantiate this biblically, but historians believe that when the whale was ordered by the Lord to spit Jonah out on the beach... There are many historians that will say he spit him back up at Joppa where he started, at the port of Joppa. The easy way out would have been to get the whale to take him all the way to Nineveh. But it seems to me that God put him back at square one for a reason. And that is to say this. Now, my friend, you've got to do something with your freedom and deliverance. You've been delivered from the belly of the whale, but you have an assignment, and you have to do something with your freedom and your deliverance. For you see, the goal for Jonah was not to get out of the whale. The goal was to get Jonah into the will of God. That was the goal. And the question that comes to us from this today, and we have to ask you as much as I've asked myself, what are you doing with your deliverance? What are you doing with your deliverance? God did not save you, dear one, just to put you in a pew in a church. If that is the sum and substance of your Christian experience, it's not enough. God didn't save you just to put you in a pew in a church. He has a plan. He has a plan to send you. He has a plan for you to serve. He has a plan for you to connect with others. He has something he wants done with your life, but he is waiting on you. Now, you would think the story should end there, and we would move on to the next minor prophet book. But to throw in chapter 4 shows us the reality of our own hearts. This is where it gets kind of raw, okay, and unfiltered. To serve God is hard, but to not serve Him is even harder. When we disobey God, we cheapen what God has called us to be. Instead of being a prophet, you become dangerous cargo. Instead of being a mouthpiece for God, you become indigestion for a whale. When we get to chapter 3, we see the mercy of God who's giving another chance, no matter how far he went or how long God has been waiting. And then God is waiting. But we close with chapter 4. Pastor Brent, if you want to come. For Jonah is finally in God's will. Chapter 4 is the most emotional chapter you'll ever see. He had now accomplished God's will. This is so strange when you read it. And I pray you'll go home. I hope you took these notes today. And I pray you'll go home and read the very short, cha- the short book, four chapters, 48 verses total. I pray that you'll go home and read it. And you're going to find when you get to this chapter four, it's so strange. Because he was angry. He's accomplished God's will. The end of chapter three, the people of Nineveh have repented. Horrible, horrible city. And they've repented. You would think it would be time for a victory dance. Get to chapter 4 and Jonah's angry. He's feeling a plethora of emotions. 
Then he was displeased. Talk about a roller coaster ride. And then he was suicidal. And then he was happy. And then he was angry again. Makes you want to say, what on earth is wrong with you? There's like five different emotions. And he's in the will of God. And here's what I've discovered. To be in the will of God, you will most likely encounter a plethora of emotions. And happiness does not mean you're in the will of God. Happiness is a great thing. But that's not necessarily the confirmation that you're in the will of God. You want to know what the Bible says about how you know you're in the will of God? It's not just happiness. It's peace. He puts a deep, settled peace down in your heart that says, some days are tough. Mm -hmm. Some days are difficult. They sure are. And you can be in the will of God and still be angry some days. That's what we learn from this text. You can be in the will of God and be extremely displeased. That's reality. You can be in the will of God and be tempted to want to end it all, but you can't because he has put a deep, settled peace down in your heart that says, I know I'm right where God wants me to be. And the peace that he gives, no one can understand. It makes no sense to anybody else, but God's the one who's placed it in there, and no one or no thing or no circumstance or no trial or no difficulty can take away the peace that God puts inside of you. Yeah, you may be tempted to end it all. You're not the only one. But you can't. Because God says, I have purpose for you. I have a plan for you. I have a design for you in your life. And so you say, God, if this is the will of God, I will accept it. I don't like a lot about it. I don't like being around cruel people. I don't like Nineveh. I don't like all this. I don't want this. But I have that inner knowing that this is the peace of God that says this is your will and I am where you have me to be. It's not about my comfort and convenience. It's about pleasing you in all of my ways. It's about walking in obedience to Christ even when that tension is there against my own will and my own way. So God, you're going to have to get me through this day. And here's what I want you to walk away with today. He will get you through the day. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Stand with me in this house today.